You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Most of us probably know a marathon runner, somebody who likely possesses dedication, heart, and a sturdy, consistent athleticism. But marathon runners in nature take a different approach. Dr. Chris Gugliano looks at bird migration, but instead of just focusing on the flight, he looks closely at the pit stop as well. It turns out that birds morph their body to fluctuate weight at a rate that simply is impossible for humans. This is all in order to refuel en route to their destination. Later, we discuss the global appeal of Western's world-class avian research facility. And Chris recounts some behind-the-scenes stories from his time helping documentarians use the facility for footage. Here's the interview. If migration is a 24-hour Formula One race, you don't look as much at the race itself, but rather the pit stop. So why don't we begin by talking about the pit stop specifically? How do birds refuel on these long flights? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting analogy that you chose because I was... Thank you. I I was thinking about it and... um, it's really uh, actually almost flipped over for migratory birds because in a, in a Le Mans race, most of the time, the, uh, you know, the car is on the track driving. And what their goal is when they come into the pit is to refuel as quickly as they can and get back on the track. And when you look at bird migration, they actually spend about 70 or 80% of the migration time at these pit stops refueling. And, and about 70 or uh, to 80% of the energy uh, as well is spent not in flight, but actually during the refueling. So the refueling is really important to the overall journey. And so how they do it is they, they fuel their flights with a lot of fat, which is something we're not very good at, but they get really, really fat. Basically during the migration season or during these pit stops, they, they change the set point of their normal body weight. So they might be skinny, but before they take off on a big flight that could last overnight or it could last, I mean, there's species that can fly up to nine days over the Pacific Ocean without stopping for food or water. So they have to put everything on before they go. And the set point for their appetite and their body weight in in the brain changes so that they basically double their food intake and they go into this state we call hyperphagia. So really they just eat like crazy and they put on a lot of weight and um, sometimes they change their diet. So, for example, um, in fall migration, where songbirds that are normally insect eaters will switch to eating fruit because it's really available. All the trees are, uh, are fruiting in the late summer and the fall in anticipation of all these birds coming. Um, and so they, that's a way that they can, when they land, they can find lots of food, and it's high in sugar, which they very quickly turn into fat. So 
You've answered my follow-up there, which is how did they know their body's in the right shape to continue? Uh, yeah. uh, so, so it comes from a chemical in the brain, which is really interesting. Yeah, there's, there's lots of different candidate hormones, and we know more about them in mammals than we do in, in birds, unfortunately. Some of the ones, like there's a hormone leptin that is secreted by your fat cells that tells you how, how uh, fat you are, and, and that seems to work in, most, in, in mammals. But when they looked for that hormone system in birds, it just was barely, wasn't really there and didn't function the same way. Right. And to continue that car analogy just a little bit longer, when a, when a driver on these 24-hour races knows when they need to go to the pit stop is because the car is indicating something or just from the expertise they've gained from driving that car so much, they can feel something that needs to be fixed. How does a bird know that they need to stop soon? Does it come back to that chemical you were just talking about? They inherently know they're low on it or is it something else? Yeah, that's another really mysterious thing. Again, we're, we're doing a study uh, with that same hormone, ghrelin, to see if it changes during flight. In our wind tunnel, we, we have a wind tunnel here at Western where we're able to artificially migrate birds, sometimes overnight. Our, our record flight has been a 28-hour nonstop flight by a little 12 or 15-gram warbler. And we're trying to get at that question, like what signals are changing um, during those long flights that tell them it's time to stop. In these really long flights, they can, they not only use and exhaust their fat stores, but they also burn up their lean tissues. So things like digestive organs, the liver, even the heart, and the flight muscles shrink in size by anywhere from about a quarter to, to half. And so there's things like stress hormones that might also be involved that start to kick in when they get down to that low fuel level that uh, let them know that uh, it's time to stop. What does it look like when a bird isn't ready for that migration, but they still go for it? So if, if they're migrating, for example, over land, then they, they'll settle down somewhere and find a good place to refuel. But there's lots of stories about, for example, trans uh, Gulf migrants that migrate across the, the Gulf of Mexico, say from Yucatan to uh, the Florida coast, and where they just aren't going to make it. And they land on ships, they land on oil platforms, and sometimes they're found washing up on, on, on the beaches. And I, have a, I used to teach about this in, a, in my course on migration here at Western. And then once, one April, I went down to Florida with a on a family vacation. And I was on the Gulf of Mexico side of Florida, and I was swimming, and I looked over to me, and there was this little black-throated blue warbler, perfectly dry above, but he had his wings out, and he was just floating in the water, and he was only about maybe 50 feet from the shore. And he had just, he was completely exhausted, and he was alive, and I just fished him out of the water, and, I, and they had a wildlife rehab center right in the town there, and they said they, they get birds like that all the time that are just there. They just don't make it to shore. Mm. So, yeah, the, the, um, about 80%, we think, of the annual mortality occurs during migration in some of these species, and, and that's how it can happen, either by predators or because they make a bad judgment and they, um, they die.
But say I'm a bird flying across the coast and I see a couple different spots I could land in to migrate for the night or, or to, you know, to stop for the night. Why would I choose one habitat or the other? What makes a good habitat for a bird to refuel at? That's also a big question we're interested in with our field studies. And, um, you know, what is a high quality stopover habitat? And I think at the, the coarsest level, it depends on the kind of kind of bird. So if it's a forest bird, then it's going to be looking for mature trees and, and nice forest habitat. If it's a wetland bird, it's going to be looking for that. If it's a shore bird, it, it's going to be looking on the coast for mudflats or sand. Um, so that's kind of the, the first level. But then when they land in one of these habitats, um, they can vary in how good they are. And there's really two components. One is the, the amount of food and their, their ability to get food. And the second is safety. So they have to balance both of those things because they could find a really wonderful place that's got tons of food, but it's very risky. It's open and there might be a lot of predators there. And on the flip side, you know, they could go to a really safe place, but there's, there's no food to eat. So those are kind of the, 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 the general things they're, they're looking for. We have some ways of studying how fast they refuel in different habitats, either by trying to recatch them a few days after we caught them a first time and look at their changes in weight, or we have techniques where we can take a blood sample from every bird we catch, and we can measure the profile of lipids in their blood, uh, and we've and those can be correlated with the, the sort of the instantaneous rate of, of fueling. Like it's a little snapshot of how well they're doing in that habitat where we caught them. We've done studies where we've compared native forest to forest that's been heavily invaded by invasive species of plants. We've done things comparing different uh, geographic locations. And right now we have a study going in New Brunswick where we're comparing birds that migrate along the coast of the Bay of Fundy to, to inland, because in that scenario, sometimes the geographic features of the landscape will funnel birds in high densities into certain areas, like along the coast. And the question is, are they using the coast because it's good, good habitat, like maybe the ocean moderates the temperature and there's more insects and so there's more food, uh, or are they there just because of bad luck? And actually the, the places where they refuel more quickly are inland. And so we're, we're doing lots of studies like that. And it's a big question for conservation, like how do we provide the, the places they need to stop? Yeah, somebody may well have done a study like this, but I would love to see the results where birds are forced to go out of their comfort zone, so a habitat that's maybe not natural to them, and give them a couple different options and see which one they pick. We've been thinking about experiments with that where, you know, you might trans translocate birds from the habitat you catch them in to one you're interested in, and then studying do they do they stay and refuel in that just as long? Or are you, like you're saying, do they, if you put them in the wrong habitat, do they say, you know, okay, I'm out of here and leave that night? Probably the, the biggest um, trap in terms of bad refueling, we think, is, is urban areas, is getting into cities where birds are attracted by parks 
in cities and maybe the food's not so good there. We actually did a study study in New York and we compared urban parks to more pristine areas north of New York City. We went into it thinking, yeah, these birds are going to land in these city parks and they're not going to do too well. It turned out that that wasn't the case, that even though the densities of birds were higher in the city parks, they refueled at the same rate as birds outside the city. So it, it re actually showed if, if you provide green space in cities, the birds will be able more or less to find food and refuel. The downside of being in a city are things like hitting window glass on, on buildings or cats and other dangers. So that's where this balance between food and safety come into play. Something you've already touched on a little bit is how birds are able to change their physique fluidly during migration, gain tons of weight, lose it, gain it again. What is it about their physique that uh, allows for this without serious health ramifications? Uh, I've seen myself and other scientists say, you know, we should be studying these birds as potential models of what's called the metabolic syndrome or type 2 diabetes because they really do look like a type 2 diabetic. They, like I said, they, they get morbidly obese in this migration season. They have blood sugar levels or blood glucose levels that are many times higher than a mammal, but they don't show the health side effects as far as we know. They don't get coronary disease or atherosclerosis, and they don't get the circulatory effects and blindness that can be associated with, with diabetes. And then the interesting thing is when they're done migrating, they basically cure themselves and they go back down to a very low weight with you know, modest fat stores because, or none, because um, it's costly to fly with all that extra weight. But I wouldn't say we have any comprehensive understanding of how they manage to avoid these health effects that we, we see in humans and, and we can mimic in you know, small mammals like, like mice and, and, and rats that are used in medical research on those same topics. You know who would love to know why birds are able to do this is Christian Bale, the actor. <laughs> Because he, he, he's gone from 140 pounds to playing Batman to playing Dick Cheney to going back yeah. down to 160. And I think a report came out a year or two years ago that his doctor was like, um, you're going to die if you keep doing this? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how he can do that. I, if I stray too much out of my narrow body weight, I feel terrible. I, I'm sure he would be fascinated by the physique of a bird. He might even want to play one. Um, <laughs> another thing that makes this so impressive about birds is they're changing climates and altitude in such a rapid, volatile manner yeah. that even small changes pertaining to global warming surely affect them. So I was wondering if you could just say what some of those effects are. Earlier springs, um, longer summers, hotter summers, can affect migratory birds because timing their arrival at the breeding ground, for example, is really important. And so if they get there at the wrong time, they get there late after there's been a burst of insects that would be good for breeding, then that mistiming can um, reduce their success in, in breeding. So if we think about you know, the advancement of springs happening earlier, 
what we're finding is that short distance migrant birds say that only that winter down in the United States and, and come through Canada and then breed up in arboreal forests, they seem to be a bit more flexible in responding to the earlier conditions and initiating their migration earlier. But there's other species that are really long distance migrants that go down to even, you know, Colombia, Brazil, uh, the other side of the equator or along the equator. And they seem to be more rigid in their timing that's based on photo period. So their internal clock is telling them, okay, now it's time to go back. Um, and that's evolved over, you know, tens of thousands of years. And now they get there and they're, they're a bit too late. And their numbers seem to be declining the most. So that's kind of one scale um, that you can think about how warming will affect them. Um, the other interesting thing is that when they're flying, they generate a lot of heat. And if they get overheated, they don't have a, you know, they don't have a canteen with them. So if they get too hot, what they have to do is um, evaporate water. And birds don't sweat. They do this mostly through their respiratory system, so respiratory uh, evaporation. And that'll bring their body temperature back down. We did an experiment on this in our uh, wind tunnel here at uh, what we call the AFAR, the Advanced Facility for Avian Research at Western. And th in that tunnel, we can manipulate the altitude and the humidity and the temperature the birds fly in. And, and in this experiment, we just dropped the humidity uh, down quite low so that they would, they would uh, have to use more water to stay cool. What we found that they did to balance themselves out was they burned up more of their organs and their muscle tissue, about the same amount of fat. But by burning up organs, it releases about five times more water than they get from, from oxidizing fat. And so it turns out that their guts and their muscles are like their canteen on these journeys. Now, if they do that too quickly, obviously, they might have to land before they even run out of fat because their muscles start to get weak and, and, and they can't support it anymore. And the other downside is if they burn all that stuff up, then when they land, if their gut's half the size that it should have been, then, you know, they've got to rebuild that gut capacity and, and before they can fatten quickly. And that's, that's actually been shown in some other experiments. So what you'd expect happening if the atmosphere is warmer than it should be, that um, they'll either face those consequences and, and fly shorter distances at a time, or they'll have to change their altitudes more than, uh, than normal. And, and just in the last few years, there was, a, there was just a really interesting paper that came out on shorebirds where they, they had GPS, very high resolution GPS trackers on them. And this, these birds do a three-day flight from Europe down to Africa. And they actually showed that they don't fly like an airplane. They don't take off and go up to a high altitude and then stay up there and then slowly come down. That would be the most efficient thing to do. They, they, they change their altitudes a lot. And the thing that, that wind was really important in determining the altitude they chose, but the most important thing was the temperature. When they hit warm air, they went up to much higher altitudes to get to colder air. And we think that's because they're trying to avoid overheating and too much water loss so that they can keep making these flights. There could come a time when the atmosphere is just too warm and they're going to have to, um, 
they'll have no choice but to fly in that in that warm air but a big part of this is we know how oil affects animals that reside in the ocean, but when oil reaches the shore, it can have these severe effects on birds where I think over 500,000 birds die a year as a result of an oil spill reaching their feathers. Why is it that oil has such a detrimental effect on a bird's ability to fly and survive? On one hand, it's a question of the amount of oil that, that gets onto them. Often after oil spills, like the Gulf oil spill, the Deepwater Horizon, some birds are just hopelessly coated in oil. And so at that level, it's a toxic thing. It gets through their skin. They ingest it while they're trying to preen it off their feathers. It has terrible effects on their organs. Um, it weakens the heart. They can get hypertrophy of the heart. Um, one of the things it does is it oxidizes hemoglobin where there's reactive products that are formed when it's being detoxified. And so their, their blood cell counts plummet, they become really anemic and, and they die. So, you know, that's kind of at that level. But in a lot of oil spills, birds get just small amounts of oil on their feathers and it's not enough to kill them outright. Um, and often those birds get overlooked or um, it, it, when, say, there's a court case and want to assign damages. And, um, you know, if you look at these lightly oiled or trace oiled birds, they're often overlooked. They're, they occur in higher numbers than the ones that get severely oiled. But, you know, you might think that, well, they're just they're going to clean themselves off and they'll be okay. But it turns out that even that small amount of oil, when it gets on their flight feathers or on their breasts, the breast feathers, it really increases the uh, drag on their bodies and it affects the abilities of the wings to, to make lift. And so we actually found that it increases their flight cost by anywhere from about 25% if it's just a, just a little bit on the edges of their wings um, by up to 40% if they also have some oil on their bellies and, and breast feathers. So we think it, ha it changes the aerodynamics and has a big effect. It's like, it's like walking with a ball and chain, like it never goes away until they clean themselves off. And you know, birds that get like that, if they have 40% higher energy costs of flying and they're trying to fly up to, uh, to breed in the boreal forest or something like that, they're, they're more likely to, to either give it up or, or die trying talk about avian malaria now how does it impede a songbird's ability to migrate because i know it's quite common for them to get avian malaria so why haven't they adapted to a point where they're still able to migrate without complications avian malaria is it's uh, similar in to to what we get to human malaria in terms of the the parasite involved birds have several other uh, parasites that they get besides what we call typical malaria. But nevertheless, they have these blood parasites that are transmitted to them by um, mosquito bites and other biting flies. And a lot of those feed on um, the red blood cells. So they'll feed on the hemoglobin. Um, and um, when you, you look across birds, it's surprising how many have it. Like if we catch birds here in Ontario, just songbirds, and we take a blood uh, sample, about 50% of them 
will be able to easily see that they have malaria. Some of them have multiple infections. Um, but what we, we actually found last year was if you, even birds that you think are negative, if you keep them in captivity for several months and, and sample them periodically, they often show up as having malaria later on, um, even though there's no mosquitoes in the, in the system anymore. So it's, it, we think it's more like 70 or 80 or 90% of, of the birds out there have avian malaria. Now this doesn't, it's no health risk to humans, it's just something they have. And they've evolved with it a lot longer than we have. Um, so you have these parasites, they feed on, on the blood cells and what they can do is make the bird anemic. And if you think about what they need to do to migrate, they need to have high red blood cell counts because they could be flying at high altitude, they're exercising really intensely and so, you know, in that way, the malaria could really impede their migration ability. Surprisingly, we don't find much correlation between having malaria and migrating in these birds. They seem to be able to deal with it unless they're in a really acute situation where they have a very large um, load of, of the parasites. So um, it's, it's a really interesting question. Like you ask, you know, how do, they, how do they still do it or do they not do it when they have malaria? They just seem to be able to tolerate it and still do their, their migration because, you know, if, if 80 or 90% of them have it, then um, we would see a signal if, if they weren't able to migrate and survive while having malaria. Yeah, it seems to be right in a sweet spot between being tolerable and intolerable yeah so let's finish up by talking about the movie you were uh, is consultant the right word yeah it's kind of a long story with the messenger it was a movie that a documentary film that came out in 2015 that we we helped with the filming of sequences that are sprinkled through the movie of, of sort of slow-mo flight action you have a prominent role in the behind the scenes footage yeah, so the filmmakers came, um, they contacted us because they had heard about our wind tunnel. And they're making this movie about the decline of songbirds across the world, but they were focusing it on, you know, North America, really, and, and what's happening here in Canada. And um, they had heard about our wind tunnel, and they really wanted to be able to show these birds in flight that no one had ever shown before. Right, because they fly so, at night. Yeah, they fly at night. Nobody really has these kinds of birds in captivity. I mean, we're talking warblers and thrushes and, and things that you really you see as, as a bird watcher, but it's not like a canary or, or something or a parrot that people keep as pets, right? So, um, but we're, we're doing research on these kinds of birds. We know how to catch them. We know how to keep them happy in captivity. We know how to train them um, to do these these migration flights uh, in the wind tunnel. So anyway, they, they came and they shot some test footage to try to get money to, to produce the movie from places like CBC and other, other funders. So that's kind of when it kicked off. And we, we had a great time doing that. We got some beautiful footage and um, that got the, the whole movie going. And then, you know, they filmed various film sequences out in the field, which was the main theme of the, of the movie. 
So they went to Costa Rica, they went to Alberta and looked at what was happening in, with you know, resource development in the boreal forest. They went to Turkey, you know, so they did all of that. But throughout the movie, they used these sort of really high resolution HD color videos and music to sort of connect with the birds, with the people, with the audience. And uh, so we were involved in that. So they came back a year or two later and they, they said, you know, when we started talking, they said, okay, we need really beautiful birds. Like what bird, what color, we want like a yellow bird, we want a blue bird, we want, you know, can we get something red or, you know? And so we kind of went through the, the bird guide and picked out candidate birds that I know are common. They're not endangered. They're really beautiful. And, um, and then we, we brought those species in, we trained them, and then we got some amazing, uh, amazing film. It was a lot of fun. And we've, we, we've done other ones. Like last year, we did a, um, we did a, a piece uh, with, with CBC that's still in, in production now. Um, it's, it's, I think it's called Canada's Wild Weather. And so we were involved in a in one about the about wind. So we'll see how that looks when that comes out. Yeah, one point in the behind the footage scenes, you say about a bird who's flying in the wind tunnel and they're taking footage. He's trying to figure out why the sun's on the <laughs> ground, and it's kind of a throwaway comment. But I, I found it really interesting because how perceptive are birds to changes like this? I mean, we've talked about them choosing habitats earlier in this podcast. So yeah. when a bird sees that the sun is below them, what yeah. happens? Does well, their think, brain explode? Do they yeah. kind of shrug it off? They try to fly upside down. <laughs> I, I think the primary cue they use must be gravity, first of all. But yeah, that was, you know, we were trying to, um, you know, show, simulate them at night. But it's a real challenge because you're shooting at, I think they were shooting at like a thousand frames a second in high def color. And so you need a lot of light to do that. We usually fly our birds in near darkness with just a little light bulb above them. So they fly right under it and they think that they're flying at night and they make these beautiful what we call flight calls that they, they use to keep in touch with each other while they're flying along. And, um, but here we bring them in and we were filming during the daytime and, you know, we'd start them out with the light low to get them going. And then we have to bring up the lights. And in that case, we really want to illuminate the underside of the bird to get the color. We'd bring the bird in and we'd say, okay, is everything ready? And then it's like, okay, action. We let the bird go, try to get as much film as we could try to get them in focus Trying to keep the camera on them is really difficult because they move around so much um, and so quickly. So they're constantly dipping in and out of focus. It's, it's really, really uh, challenging. And uh, we see things that we, we never see otherwise because, you know, I, I don't have that kind of equipment. So we, we see some pretty amazing things. In the How do we get people to appreciate birds more moving forward? Well, I, I was writing a, uh, a piece the other day, kind of a review paper, and trying to figure out how to get people to, to appreciate what some of these birds can do. And, and, the, and it's about, the thing I was writing about was like, these birds I alluded to that leave Alaska, and they fly all the way down to New Zealand without stopping. And it takes 
eight days on average, some of them over nine days to get there. Um, and so there's all these questions about how they navigate that. And, you know, my interest was how do they budget all the fuel and, and water uh, to survive this, this journey. And so, you know, I was thinking about it and I said, you know, often people, my kids often say, you know, okay, you can have one superpower. What do you, what would it be? You know, invisibility or something like that. And most people say, I'd like to be able to fly. <laughs> and so I thought, yeah, I mean, that would be a great superpower, but I've never heard anybody think, you know, how long could a superhero or heroine fly without stopping? Like, I guess they never hardly ever show them eat dinner or anything, but you know, could Superman fly for, you know, over a week and not need to refuel? And so I think that's their superpower is that, uh, you know, they not only fly, but they can do it for seemingly forever. I mean, it takes, takes um, a shorter distance for a shorter time for, for humans to sit in a capsule and go to the moon than it takes these birds to get to New Zealand. Yeah, that's cool. They're warriors. They're long distance Iron Men. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. That wraps up another episode of Western Science Speaks. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast to make sure you stay up to date with the latest episodes and research from our community. To find us on your preferred podcast platform, search up Western U Science. For now, I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.